This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. Fariha Roshin is a multidisciplinary artist and author who was born in Ontario, Canada and raised in Sydney, Australia. She's now based in Los Angeles, California. As a Muslim queer Bangladeshi, she is interested in the margins, liminality, otherness, and the mercurial nature of being. Fariha's latest book, Who is Wellness For?, explores the ways in which the progressive health industry has appropriated and commodified global healing traditions. She reveals how wellness culture has become a luxury good built on the wisdom of Black, Brown, and Indigenous people while both ignoring and excluding them. In this episode, Faria is joined by CIIS Associate Professor of Anthropology and Social Change, Targol Mesba, in an engaging conversation that explores the commodification and appropriation of wellness through the lens of social justice and provides resources to help anyone participate in self-care, regardless of race, identity, socioeconomic status, or able-bodiedness. This episode was recorded during a live online event on July 13th, 2022. A transcript is available at ciispod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Hi, good evening. Hi, Fariha. It's um, nice to be here with you. A welcome, welcome everyone. And um, I'm super excited to talk about this really, really powerful book, your latest book, Who is Wellness For? And um, just wanted to invite you to uh, do a reading, to start us off with a reading from your book, um, to set the tone for us to get a sense of your beautiful prose, your powerful prose, and then to sort of initiate the conversation between us. I'm going to be reading Introduction to Radical Self-Care. One of the best guides to how to be self-loving is to give ourselves the love we are often dreaming about receiving from others. Bell Hooks. Though I've been writing about self-care professionally for about seven years now, diligently, methodically tending to it like a spiritual study. At times, I have felt I know nothing about how to truly care for myself. Initially, I turned to the concept of self-care for answers and found the work of the late, great bell hooks and the tender radicality of Audre Lorde. I too craved an anecdote to better understand who I was, and I longed to know how to aid myself in order to become that person. I knew that the reservoir of unresolved anger rooted in me like a deep prickly weed made it hard to know how to love myself. And so I assumed, rightly, the first step toward my higher evolved state was to learn myself intimately and to accept it all. 
I had to understand myself like a lover and to appreciate everything I felt was unlovable, gaining a security I had never known in myself. And according to Hooks and Lord, there is an inherent radicality to caring for yourself when you come from a lineage of oppressed peoples. Taking on self-care as an active embrace has meant merging the needs of my mind and body, because in the act of self-care, the mind and body are prioritized. That is the very self you are caring for. Nothing that I share is a one-size-fits-all theory, but instead something I've gleaned from my personal studies. I have often felt like self-care should come with instructions because I didn't quite know where to begin the process myself. The nature of self-care's commodification has meant that we've lost track of how personal this journey is. We all have our own traumas, fears, needs, and therefore our own specifications idiosyncrasies. With such an overwhelm of choice, it can be difficult to know what we need as individuals, how to care for your own damn self. Capitalism has destroyed our sensors and instead we want it all or much of it without understanding what is inherent or honest to ourselves. We take direction from websites, peer reviews, and best ofs to determine the scope of what we like. This is, of course, those of, those of us who have the luxury to afford and fathom caring for ourselves. Why does wealth, real or imagined, inherited or self-made, make us believe in our own entitlement? In the 2015 New York Times article, The Price of Nails, Sarah Maslin Nurse spoke to the labor condition of, conditions of nail salon workers across the boroughs of New York. Nail salons are governed by their own rituals and mores, a hidden world behind the glass exteriors and cute corner shops. In it, a rigid racial ethnic caste system reigns in modern day New York City, dictating not only pay, but also how workers are treated. This is how they're treated internally. Then there's dealing with actual customers. I remember feeling immensely grateful for this piece when it was published as I had witnessed my own eyes enough women, always white women, bullying nail salon workers in a variety of different scenarios to realize that there was a context of entitlement of who gets to self-care that wasn't being acknowledged. So much of the rallying cry of white supremacy happens in these moments of ubiqui ubiquity when even the most virulent acts of entitlement are ignored because we expect it of whiteness. I can't write about self-care without first pointing toward the obvious. Your care cannot impede on the care of others. Just like the concept of freedom, ask yourself, is it really freedom if it is only for some? If we prioritize not just what we think we deserve, but also how we are in relation to others. And that's how we care for them as well. We might experience true liberation. Being unbound by fear or hurt or pain simply by showing up as the best version of who we are sounds like liberatory behavior. 
Why has whiteness made the playing field so dirty with such high stakes and yet such low standards? Why isn't the measure of a successful society how well we care for each other? And how can we possibly believe that programming people to think only for themselves could result in holistically positive results? I think of all these years, I struggled with true unadulterated self-care because I was taking direction from others, expecting them to have solutions that I could have easily just learned by myself for myself. But I believed that I would be cured by another's expertise. When that failed me too many times, I began to realize that I could find the right acupuncturist for me, the therapist for me, and that I could build my own routine around my life and my needs. Agency is an important and necessary part of self care because, in the process of learning, that you have it, you are forced to take ownership over your life. Caring for yourself means taking a giant leap toward yourself. You have to put yourself in your own driver's seat. Thank you so much. And what a rich passage. You have um, all the elements that make this book so um, compelling for me are woven into this th- these pages that you read. And um, I think one of the first things I want to share is the way you are able to use your own personal experience to sort of work within this genre of a memoir, perhaps, but to then push it to a level that also engages with systematic analysis or analysis of systems. And and so to be able to connect your experience to these larger systems and structures that are affecting everybody, right? Um, Specifically in terms of obviously these systems of oppression that you get into, uh, colonialism, capitalism, patriarchy, um, but, but to come at it from a very courageous and personal um, narrative that's not, um, that does both, right? That's not solipsistic, that it's not about sort of, you know, just being quote unquote self-involved, um, but that has such a, um, deep connection to the experience of life under capitalism for all. And like, I find this to be really powerful and not an easy thing to do for writers. <laughs> um, I think that one of the, well, one of the things I wanted to ask you is sort of for you to talk a little bit about your trajectory as a writer, because you start, your first um, publication was a book of poetry. And that's something that I see in your writing here, the ability to convey more than one meaning at, at once, you know, to hold complexity and multiplicity. It's a, it's something that a poem does, like it's, it's, um, that's, it's, it's the form that does it so well. So I was curious if you could talk a little bit, just also as a way of introduction, perhaps more to your own personal history. You started uh, your first publication was a book of poetry and then a novel, and this is the third uh, publication 
that is in nonfiction format. So maybe if you could speak a little bit about that trajectory. Um, so I've been writing online for a long time. Um, I've been writing online for about 10 years and I started writing. I mean, I, I started like a bird, my novel when I was 12. So I've been working on it for a long time. And then when I was in school, I was really invested in social justice. I was a really, really, really committed kid. And, you know, I was going to detention centers and, and talking to it. Um, I grew up in Australia, so there was a lot of refugee um, crisis, like just a lot of, in the 90s and the 2000s, just a lot of um, focus on refugees. Um, you know, there was like many different wars that happened during that time. And um, Australia just has an abhorrent relationship with refugees. And so um, I was doing a lot of uh, just organizing and I, I talk about this a lot in the book. I come from, you know, this pretty intense heritage and lineage of socialist, Marxist, Leninist, Maoist um, perspective from the global South. So I have this like very intense uh, father and parenting on one hand um, that I think really helped shape my political languaging very young. Um, everything that I write about is like things that I was taught as a child. So it's really um, beautiful to sort of, this is the first work, Who's Wellness Wars, the first work where it felt very cohesive, um, where I was um, able to kind of like create that linear, linearity between like my childhood and, and sort of the evolution of of who I am, but I, I began writing. Um, so outside of the novel, I began like professionally writing as a film critic. So I've had many different lives. Um, and I worked as a film critic for many years. My, one of my first loves is film. Um, and so I think that that has a lot to do with my abuse and my trauma. I think I've like, like, I like, you know, I think I, I experienced my totality and reality in, in, in like very extreme situations, you know, and like, that was so much of like how I was raised. So I like, like cinema, I, I like understand cinema. Um, so that when, and then, but like, you know, I started writing film criticism and was writing about like race in the early 2010s and was essentially being, um, kind of erased in because of the how white supremacist frankly most publications are <laughs> and especially back then um so I was being silenced a lot of the time editors were telling me like can you not make this about race can you not make this movie about right you know like it's not always like a void of something and I think that sort of that pressure I, when I started to see society shift, I kind of felt like I was ready to shift into a different paradigm of writing. I don't think I was being taken seriously as a culture writer, as a film writer. Um, and I was being silenced. So I was like, fuck this. Um, so I started um, focusing on like, what would the reality of books look like for me? Again, you know, I had, I had 
been riding like a bird for for such a long time so I knew that that there was like one thing that I definitely wanted to publish and then how to cure a ghost I think came to me during to like during the years of 2014 to about 2017 I think I finished it around 2017 18 really um and those years were really rough for me psychologically and poetry became a channel um of truth and uh I think that like the place where I could say everything I needed to say about myself and begin to untether myself from my childhood and sort of see more objectively what I had been through. But um, yeah, How to Cure, I sold How to Cure a Ghost and Like a Bird at once. And then they came out one year after another. Um, and now I'm here. It's very exciting. Thank you. <laughs> It is very exciting. Um, I think. Well, you you have, um, you know, the, there's there's such a range of scholarship and experiences that you bring to weave you weave in to this book, and um, I think you really make a lot of um, otherwise inaccessible material accessible in a very useful way. Uh, to a, a wider audience. I think that's really important work of translation, like cultural translation. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think it, I'm very curious also to see how this really much needed critique of the wellness industry um, and its sort of fetishization of sort of individual, sort of the neoliberal individual, right, mm-hmm. um, is um, completely cut off from uh, the larger context um, and histories that inform illnesses and also their medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, what the, the, one of the central arguments that you make is about this paradox of how the sort of colonial and capitalist systems that do create the conditions of harm um, and displace people and harm them <laughs> Um, are also the same, it's the same system that um, appropriates medicine from those very cultures and repackages it and makes it available for, uh, you know, a price to people in the West who can afford it. And um, that's one of the central contradictions of the book. Um, And And there are many others, actually, that I find really compelling also that I'd like us to talk about. But I wonder how um, specifically in relationship to your own experience, how you came up against that in your own life, that that um, in the context of being South Asian, queer, Muslim, South Asian, um, living in different places in Australia and then the U.S. You mean the contradiction or... Um... Yeah, the contra- like like how you came up against this appropriate like your critique how the critique of the wellness industry sort of sprang up from your own very okay. concrete experiences, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, I think that um, like having the 
reflection of my parents and seeing, beginning to really fully understand how, how much they had been denied, like how ruthless their um, and imposing colonizing colonization was to them and how that was very much, I mean, it took me a very long time to figure this out, but it, it, that was very much impeding on how they could be parents to me and good, good parents. You know, I didn't receive good parenting. Unfortunately, I had a very inspiring situation for many different reasons and obviously a very tumultuous situation, but I wasn't given sort of the formative um, foundation. And I think that's when I started to see the holes and cracks. And because I was so invested in justice at, from a very young age and had um, had a father and had a lineage that supported sort of the importance of revolution, I've never, I've never questioned um, my responsibility. And I've never uh, that's not true. I have questioned my responsibility, but I guess I like feel, um, I feel like all of this sort of analysis and synthesization and really sort of the life that I was given both of like having the father, like I did, um, who was like very learned and political. And, um, I think this is the most important part of my dad. He like, he, he was willing to fight for justice. And I think seeing that uh, across my family and seeing how like there are people that are willing to speak up really encouraged me to do the same. And then I also had the mother motherhood that I had and, and the extreme um, violence that I experienced under her hands. So I think all of it was really, really useful that's a weird word to use, but it is, it was very useful for me to start to be like, okay, why is it that like yoga, when I go, I started practicing yoga at 13 in Australia, going to a yoga class, seeing no brown people there, seeing no other South Asian person there. And I got like, yeah, I got, um, I got, uh, <sighs> I think just the awareness and like this sort of like ripeness of anger and frustration. But even then I didn't obviously know how to talk about white supremacy, like the, that like white supremacy was the core issue. I was just sort of like, okay, like, I guess like this isn't affordable to other South Asians. I don't know. Um, and of course, yeah, that was almost, 20 years. So I started yoga almost 20 years ago. So I've been having this like real life analysis, like taking it in and observing for almost 20 years. So it's not like, you know, just like, and any, I think South Asian person can tell you the sort of isolation and sadness that you feel when you first start to encounter that. And you're like, hang on a second. Why is it that, you know, Indians themselves, South Asians themselves can't actually afford this necessary tool for healing. Um, so I think a lot of things in my life kind of led me down this path and gave me the specification of why I needed to write this book. I think I definitely feel like this, I gathered all of the 
all of the knowledge and um, life experience and transmuted it into the page, onto the page. I think one of my favorite lines is, I'm really good at making magic out of shit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's really, you are. (laughs) It's one of my favorite things to say to people. Yeah. Um, Yeah, the sort of the observation around yoga and also meditation, like meditation culture and how that's co-opted and used as a way to, well, just how it's corporatized, you know, mm-hmm. like, like, um, I think the, the contradiction of, yes, you can use meditation and mindfulness um, to ease the harm that this system is inflicting upon you every day so that you can continue to work for the system <laughs> that is reproducing this in your everyday life. And it's actually not even that is not accessible to everybody. So those contradictions come through really strongly in your book. And I don't know how much you feel like talking about this at this moment, but you ha- you address the really complex history of yoga that I just was stunned to read. Um, and the just the really interesting approach of inviting us to look at the complex histories of the worlds that we inhabit, you know? And yeah, I don't know if you feel like speaking to that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, nobody talks about caste supremacy when they talk about India and like, (laughs) you know, like nobody was like, Oh, right. Um, Literally like this esteemed caste is the cat Brahmins are the priests and and the most religious, um, you know, venerated people close to God, Brahma, and obviously the idea of Brahman is is a very integral part of Hinduism. And, um, you know, I have so much love for Hinduism and uh, obviously, and I hope that it comes out on the page, you know, just like how much respect I have for the faith and, and, and the construction of that faith and like what that identity has hel- has helped and supported and um, like reflected India back into itself, you know, like Hinduism is so synonymous with India and yet it's also not, you know, there's so many different um, faiths and there's so many different people, there's so many different um, realities of being an Indian. Um, so now, of course, like India, if, if, if we, if we don't know, and I talk about this in several different places in the book, it's being sort of run by a, a, the fascistic right, the BJP party, and they are, you know, very, very anti-Muslim. They're very anti-Dalit, the, the, um, the, the lowest caste known as the lowest caste which was formerly called the untouchables. So um, in relation to other, 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 you know, identities, there is sort of this like very like um, one identity of India that's being bred. And 
Narendra Modi, who is the prime minister of India, has also co-opted a lot of the wellness and, and also yoga. Like he's a huge proponent of yoga and, and keeping it sort of like, and, and allowing like the West to acknowledge that it's an Indian art form. Um, so there's even in the rhetoric of, of the, the current state of India, there's like so much um, desire to kind of um, remind people that it's, it's um, not even remind people, like sort of deny the totality of what yoga is and what it has been and the caste politics that unfortunately do temper and color so much of what comes out of India, meditation included. And But meditation is interesting because Buddhism was anti-casteist. And so Buddhism was a response, much like Islam was too, um, later in India. But Buddhism was very much, you know, created and Buddha was very openly anti-caste. Um, he was an Indian man <laughs> um, and he really sort of denied um, that and denied uh, that like, you know, that there can be like um, a hierarchy to enlightenment. And I think that's really sort of the integral part of uh, this conversation that I bring up in the book and what I really encourage other people to think about. I mean, we have to, when we understand context, we have to understand that entire context because I think that's the responsibility that we owe each other in our cultures and especially the cultures that have been demolished by colonization. There is a responsibility. And, and I say this for myself as well. I need to get better at this too. I'm not like the be all end all expert of everything. So I get it that it's, um, it's, uh, it's an evolution even in and of itself, you know, you're constantly learning. Um, but it's just something that I think that we need to talk about and address at the very least, just the ways in which fascism, unfortunately, does really also um, like wield itself with like wellness and health and how like that's, we're seeing that as well, like the sort of co-opting of like, what does it mean to be like perfect? Um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot to say. Thank you so much. There is, and you have, you, you gave a lovely summary and there's more in the book um, on the topic, but I think that you, you, you made the connections really well for us right now. Um, I want to slightly shift um, to talk a little bit more about um, the, this, this idea of healing wellness in general and the relationship to healing traumas and um, one might even say our responsibility um, to to heal <laughs> and there's a um, there's a lot in there that I want to unpack but the first thing is I I want to make sure that I address the way you define, at least in the book, in um, the ways that I've read it, um, the idea of healing and wellness as a process, um, not as something that, you know, a fixed thing that, that you arrive at and you're healed, but as, as a journey. Um, and there's a little passage on 153. 
three that I wanted to um, quickly read, if that's okay, or if you want to read yeah. it. No, no, it's, please read it. Um, it says, in my life, healing has been about integrating the fragments of mind, body, and spirit that were shattered by trauma. As I nurtured and braided all these disparate parts of myself together, a more honest version of me began to form. The more I thought about this on a micro level as an individual, the more I began to see a parallel between the earth and humans. If I could heal myself, and what I mean by this is largely about acceptance. It's healing to accept a failing body and tell that body, I love you unconditionally. Maybe we would have more proof for a way to collectively heal the earth too, because the earth like our own bodies, needs so much love, nurturance, and gentleness from us. So beautiful. Um, I, I really appreciate this, pa this passage specifically for just reminding, again, what you mean by healing. Because it can be so, I mean, I personally used to be really resistant to the very nomenclature of <laughs> healing, right? Just the, even the vocabulary, because for me, um, it, it represented, um, a denial of the, the conditions that cause harm. It's like, how can you heal if the system that's causing harm is continuing, right? It's, it can only be temporary and for some, mm -hmm. um, but you know, the beauty of language is that words have multiple meanings and ideas, um, move through, sorry for the sirens. <laughs> um, I'll mute myself for a second. <laughs> it's disappearing. It's actually one of my favorite um, cultural theorists, Stuart Hall, used to say, um, you know, language and meaning is always fluid. It's always power that wants to mm -hmm. fix Mm -hmm. um, the meaning, right? Yes, Stuart. Uh, I can go <laughs> off. Yes. So, so I just I love I love that just the very um, activity of reclaiming terms, redefining terms, and ideas and concepts, and activating and motivating them in a different direction. I think is really powerful. And I also see. And, and, and this passage also then connects, you connect uh, the healing to our relationship to Mother Earth. And that's sort of where, there's, there's a place in the book where you say, I forget where it is, but you say something like, well, we, we have to change everything. <laughs> we mm -hmm. need to reset it all, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and, you know, for me, that, that, was, that was, that's how I think about um, different uh, land rematriation projects. Um, like you mentioned Sagorate, which is actually located in, that's, that's in where mm -hmm. I live in the Bay Area, or Wichin, which is the uh, term for Oakland in the Chochenya language of the Lishan um, peoples, the Ohlone peoples, the Lishan Ohlone people. Um, and Sagorate is a uh, urban indigenous women-led um, land trust organization that's involved in uh, different rematriation projects. And, and this idea of rematriating the land 
um, you know, is, is not so much a, um, this idea of shifting ownership, <laughs> but it shifts our idea of ownership because nobody owns the earth. Um, but, but that um, is an invitation to engage in a very different relation, in, in a relationship with the earth and all its beings, right? And this reciprocal, elemental, relational um, set of ideas um, is something that you also animate, you know, in your work and how you connect this idea of healing yourself from trauma, um, traumatic experiences, and, and your definition of healing and the ongoing journey of that work is necessarily tied to this wider, um, you know, interconnection mm-hmm. um, to others, to everybody. Wellness, and that's your conclusion. It has to be for everybody if it's to be for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, that includes our earth, which is what gives us life every day. Yeah. That was a long comment and not a question in there. No, but I mean, it's true. I agree with everything that you said. Yeah. Um, but I, I will, um, I, I want to sort of continue this to, to get back to this idea of the responsibility of healing from trauma. Um, it's where you talk about, I just have to bring my notes. Um, you, you talk about the, in how in Iroquois law, there is this idea of seven generations and it's a foundation of a code for more responsibility to heal, um, so that we don't reproduce abusive, uh, we don't reproduce the same lessons, Right. Mm-hmm. And um, and this, I found this really, really compelling um, as a way to think about as, as this part of this n- different way of defining wellness and healing. That is a responsibility for future generations, right? Because mm-hmm. what we we also learn from you and your history with your mom is that she was also traumatized, right? And that there is this kind of cyclical process um, that, you know, we, we, we know more about it in the context of uh, the 1971 war. Uh, we get some glimpses. There's not, you don't go too much into it, but it's there, right? This idea that there is a, uh, you know, like a generational process. Um, and... And, you know, and to think that in so many different contexts, quote unquote, perpetrators and victims, and I say, quote unquote, not because I don't think there are perpetrators and victims. I just think that they are the perpetrators and victims and other things also. (laughs) Um, But that um, but that there's that usually folks who cause harm were harmed themselves at some point, right? And so if we push that logic through, we understand the responsibility and the importance of needing to heal from those um, experiences, right? 
so I would love to um, hear a little bit more from you about your relationship with sort of coming to terms with that very difficult, um, you know, realization that, and and perhaps liberating realization that the person who caused you harm was also harmed and sort of what that sort of understanding that is probably something that you probably come to again and again, I imagine it's not a static position, right? Some of the experience of that for you and strategies for you to move through that experience. What are some of the strategies or? Yeah. I am an abolitionist and that has really changed my life because um, I was already thinking about this sort of, you know, in 2018, I wrote an essay about MIA, the rapper, and uh, it was an essay called In the Defense of Nuance. And the whole article sort of grappled with what do we do with people, especially in the public eye, that fail us? and are just inevitably going to be messy and do things that are harmful and they're going to harm people. It's just the sort of natural reality of us as humans. We are messy. Um, Bio Akamalafe also talks about this a lot, sort of the kind of like chaos of the world, you know, and like how actually other spiritual ontology is outside of these very like specific kind of, you know, monotheistic ones don't make a lot of space for I mean and and one could argue that every sort of like you know I, I think Islam has this Christianity probably has this I think Judaism has this as well sort of conversations that talk about liminality but by and large the kind of like what we get taught the kind of like dogmatic version of these faiths um denies us the reality of chaos and um, my life was really chaotic. My mother, my mother abused me. My mother molested me. My mother harmed me. My mother tried to kill me. My mother tried to, you know, she's just, I, I, that's why I don't want to talk to her ever again. I have no interest in having a relationship at the same time. I and working on forgiving her every day and loving her every day because I understand, maybe not every day, I don't, I don't really, but you know, sometimes she's, sometimes she's really present. And like, you know, for years I was really angry and it wasn't getting me anywhere. It didn't get me anywhere to be so rageful and also really like not even know what to do with the rage I was just turning it on turning it against myself turning it inward um so I think like when I realized that you know abolitionist practice praxis and practice is all about understanding that chaos understanding that humans are inherently messy so what's next what's the what how do we create 
spaces of transformative justice or spaces of true um, um, true reflection and true rehabilitation. How do we create that for people that harm us and fail us? Because rapists are always going to exist in society, probably sadly, you know, and like uh, there's always going to be people that are going to harm other people. You know, what my mom did is very inevitable given her life. It, it was There was an inevitability attached to it. And I just happened to be the person that was harmed. And I think that I, for myself, for my ancestry, for this, the lineage of sexual abuse that I carry in my body and the, the lineage of sexual abuse that I carry just in my own life, um, that reality, that reality that no other woman or femme person in my life, in my family probably could have said or talked about, I get to end that with myself. I get to, and that goes back to the Iroquois law, you know, and the idea of seven generations. It is this concept of of grappling with your humanity as a larger interconnected part of something that's greater and grander and um, a tapestry of, of, of people that you are energetically connected to that you have a responsibility to. And I think that is also what it comes back to responsibility. I think we want to like discard people and be like, well, it's your issue now. Good luck. And I think the criminal justice system here and, and the prison industrial complex here um, and the denial of like understanding the ways in which slavery is absolutely um, being uh, perpetuated in you know, the prison system and the ways in which that dehumanization needs to occur for there to be the status quo and the hierarchy that exists in the US where for the entire existence of this country, they've relied on stolen labor and stolen land. That is the reality of the United States of America that hasn't changed in the last 400 years. And so whether it's you're taking it quote, like from a, you know, um, an outpost, you know, if you're going into the Middle East and you're creating havoc in order for to get oil and resources, whether you're doing it that way or you're doing it actually to your own people in every way, shape or form, the U.S. is depleting other people and other um, resources for its own gain. And for me, that is, um, that's really, really important to talk about. I totally lost my train of thought, but I, I'm like, where did, where am I taking this again? What was your question again? Um, it doesn't matter, but you answered, you, it was a perfect answer. Oh <laughs> no, you went, it went, you connected, you connected the responsibilities and yeah. You. I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about the degrowth movement and how you came to it and that you've sort of been involved for over a year. Um, and I think at the time in New York, you had mentioned, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so, well, I'm still part of degrowth in New York City. Um, shout out, shout out to my comrades. Um, and we are a Marxist Leninist organization that is dedicated to essentially um, educating and investing in degrowing from capitalism. So 
what that means and how I explain that to people is generally about consumption, going back to just how you consume and why you consume it. So who do you shop shop from? Who do you buy from? Um, and and why? And, and looking at those spending habits, looking at how sort of you engage with need and want. Um, I think in the era of fast fashion, I and I talk about this, and this is something that I'm going to continue to talk about. I have, um, I like nice things, you know, and that that's I love beautiful objects. I'm very invested in my home. I like fashion, um, and through time, I've really thought about, you know, the rea- the reality is because we are a trading peoples. You know, we have traded for a millennia. It's not capitalism's fault. Like it's not. You know, I think often people think about socialism, and this is how I was very much taught as a kid too. But now I'm a, an adult, and I have I can make my own I- ideas about things. But socialism, or you know, anti-capitalist rhetoric, is not about like don't consume, never have anything nice. You can't, you know, have nice things. It's essentially about consumption. How are you consuming? Where are you consuming from? And why are you consuming it? So if you're buying. Um, less and not buying from fast fashion. I think fast fashion is one of those things, you know, like Zara, like you're forever. Who do you wish to read this book and what do you hope they take from it? Um, white rich people, for sure. <laughs> I would love white rich people to read this book and be like, whoa, I can change so much. I can do so much um, and feel energized about that. Um, yeah, this book is really, really like I'm really trying to get it to to the people that are responsible. And then, of course, like, I mean, that's one that's one group of people. And then, of course, like I want child sexual abuse survivors to read this book. I want people in prisons to read this book. I want people that have suffered intergenerational trauma to read this book. I want anybody that feels like they have something to heal to read this book. So I really wanted to get as far um, as I possibly can. I want this book to get into as many hands as that will have them. And I feel very grateful that, you know, that people read my work, but yes, any way that you can encourage others to read. Um, if you're watching, thank you so much. I, I need your support. So like, give it to everyone, talk about it. Um, thank you for having me here. It's just like, such a gift to share this work with people there has been such an emphasis from corporations to be like well it's the individual's responsibility however that's not the case if a family is barely getting by we can't think about how much you know petrol usage or like you know even a like what like they get to do whatever the fuck they want like it's if you are barely get, getting by, you don't have a responsibility, I don't think. I mean, of course you do, but collectively we all do. But it is really sort of, I think, re-examining that. But who really, who, what is the cost here? If like 1% of the richest in the world are using 50% of what the poorest nations in the world consume, it's a consumption issue. So. Um, I'm really, you know, really trying to talk to rich people here and and talk about like, why do you need money and why are you hoarding it? And 
if we believe in utopic envisioning, which I very much am, I am very much invested in, there is enough to go around. We know that there is enough to end poverty. Elon Musk knows that. There's like a lot of things that we could do. This idea that power corrupts absolutely, absolute power corrupts absolutely, is so boring and basic to me. And I'm not interested in that kind of human weakness anymore. I think that we are really looking at our last days on such a majestic and beautiful planet. And I really, really hope that, and I really don't actually think we have a choice that we begin to change rapidly. Um, and I think degrowth is really the solution. Thank you so much. I, yeah, the, the connection between um, tackling consumption at the level of the system and structure so that that of an economy that's based on the idea of growth, like everything, like you know, the growing economy, that's like if it's not growing 5%, there's something wrong, right? right? And this idea yeah. of not sort of having a different conception, like degrowth, as, 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 as the title is, um, as the name is. Because we can't keep growing where it's not sustainable. We actually, we're, we're hitting the point where we actually can continue to grow. Yes. So I, and I don't think like the average American understands that. Like there's not just like an exponential growth. Like the planet can't support us. She actually can't support us. She does. Yeah. She's showing us she can't support us. So yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think that sort of your way of talking about degrowth in the book and also sort of um, the emphasis on organizing is so important because it's not about like individual consumer choice, like today, should I buy this or should I buy mm-hmm. that, right? Mm-hmm. Which is what the corporate world wants you to think that, right. you know, you can, that you can make life-changing decisions by what you buy. Um, but that, 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 but nonetheless, choice and responsibility are there, but at a collective level and in a way that we, we need to work together, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to award yeah. one another, really sort of mm-hmm. keep each other in mind, I think, like understand that like also different people have different needs, but it's really, really engaging with the fact that like mutual aid, if you have more, you have a res- bigger responsibility to give back. Yeah. We can't just hoard millions of dollars anymore. It's not, what, what are you going to do with billions of dollars in a planet that's burning? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. No, it does not. I will say maybe just one. I, there's so many things I, I, I want to touch on about the book more, but we don't have time. I encourage folks to read it. Um it's a beautiful offering. And one of the things that you say, maybe I'll, I'll close us out with this, is it's actually in towards the beginning of the book. Um, I think it's through Saidiya Hartman's work that you talk about sort of how domination works through the policing of our imaginations, you know. And I just, um, I appreciate so much that reminder and, and, and this, again, another invitation for us to imagine, imagine the world we want, imagine the connections we need, imagine 
<laughs> imagine the um, the earth that's flourishing that is not being um, desecrated by you know extractivist capitalism and greed and profit driven um, structures and systems and we um, we have each other yeah we do and that's an extraordinary thing worth our time and our energy to protect Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team also includes Izzy Angus, Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Patty Fort, and Nikki Rhoda. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, CIIS.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities. <laughs>